You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Digestive Disease Center at the Medical University of South Carolina, Dr. Mark DeLaghi. Constipation as a common symptom can have various underlying causes. How can we determine the best methods for treating occasional and chronic constipation? Joining us to discuss chronic constipation is Dr. David Pura, Professor of Medicine at the University of Virginia School of Medicine and past president of the American Gastroenterological Association. Welcome, Dr. Pura. Well, Mark, thank you very much. David, I am bombarded with commercials and print ads about having a normal or comfortable bowel movement or changing my bowel movements to be less constipated. Just how common is this diagnosis of constipation? Well, Mark, that really depends, I guess, on you know where you're seeing the patients, what sort of practice. It's estimated somewhere, oh, maybe between 10 and 15% of the adult population is going to have a diagnosis of constipation. Many of those people don't actually see their physicians or healthcare providers, but about 10 to 15%. Much more common in women, about 2 to 3 to 1, women to men. And also, it increases with age. So if you're seeing a large number of chronologically gifted patients, let's say, in your practice, you're going to be seeing more patients with constipation. It's estimated that almost a third of individuals, say, over the age of 60, are going to have constipation, and it's almost as high as 50% if you look at institutionalized patients. So it's really a common problem. No wonder you're inundated. You're absolutely right. Well, my other question then is I've heard about this irritable bowel syndrome, constipation predominant, and then separately patients who are chronically constipated. Is that the same group or are they different? Yeah, Mark, they're very different people. And I think that a lot of confusion arises from chronic constipation versus irritable bowel, the constipation predominant type. You really have to talk to people and try to get an idea of what their major symptoms are. And chronic constipation means different things. We'll probably talk a little bit about that, what it means to patients as we go on. But but chronic constipation usually is a painless condition. Pain is not a major component. People are just unsatisfied with their defecation. Whereas individuals that have IBS, the hallmark is really going to be abdominal pain. So if somebody comes to you and they're complaining of abdominal pain and they're unhappy with their bowel movements, likely they have IBS. If they come to you just complaining of being unsatisfied with their bowel movements, likely they have chronic constipation. It's going to be important to make that distinction because the treatments are going to be a little bit different. From that perspective, what causes constipation? When I was growing up, my mom always told me, you know, you're just stressed. That's what the problem is. Is that what it is? Yeah, stress could play a little role in it, but, you know, I think that some of our lifestyle probably has something to do with it. We traditionally divide constipation into primary and secondary causes, and primary causes are, you know, just things like colonic inertia. The colon doesn't work very well, and that's not a very common diagnosis. That's what people think is their colon isn't working, but when we do tests on these people, that only makes up probably less than 5% of our chronically constipated individuals. There are some people, though, that have disordered defecation, maybe, oh, 15 to 20%, maybe even higher if we really tested them. Those are people that just have difficulty relaxing their sphincter. You know, when people strain to have a bowel movement, their sphincter is supposed to relax. But there are people with disordered defecation that the harder they strain, the more the sphincter actually contracts. So it's like having a bowel movement through a shut door. And that's a unique population that requires a little different treatment. But the majority, probably... 
oh, 65 to 75% of folks actually have what we call normal transit. The stool gets through the intestine in a reasonable time. It's just the patients are having difficulty passing the bowel movement. We always have to think, though, about secondary causes. That's the challenge for us as healthcare providers, especially in our older folks who are taking multiple medications. Remember, many of the meds that our patients are taking have potential side effects that can result in constipation. We need to think about structural problems. We always worry about colon cancer, and that's why we image people. Endocrine diseases, uh, diabetes. People think about diarrhea being a common sequela of diabetes, but actually the most common GI sequela of diabetes is going to be constipation. Remember things like hypothyroidism, hypercalcemia, you know, muscle problems. As people get older, they just get weaker. They don't have the muscle strength that they used to when they were younger, so they end up doing a lot of straining. So primary and secondary causes really are things that we need to consider when we're evaluating our folks. David, I know there's been a lot of talk about how to approach a patient with constipation, meaning someone's in the office and they start to talk about their bowel movements and let's just say you suspect constipation as a diagnosis. Is there an algorithm or some way that a practicing gastroenterologist should approach these patients? Remember, Mark, most of these patients really are coming to the primary care physician. So by the time they see us as gastroenterologists, oftentimes they've been evaluated and treated. But I think the biggest challenge that folks face is communication. You know, just talking about trying to get an idea of what bothers the patient. I mean, you and I, I'm sure, were taught when we were in medical school and early on in our training that, that constipation was quantity-based. People weren't having enough bowel movements. Correct. But really, most people aren't as much concerned about quantity as they are about quality. They're more concerned about straining or hard or lumpy stools or sensation of incomplete evacuation. So I think the first thing in the algorithm is really to get on the same wavelength of the patient. Ask the patient to really describe what their major concerns are because your approach is going to be very different if they're just having hard stools, but hard stool once a day, versus having a stool every five or six days. So unless you can really get a definition of what's bothering the patient, you're not going to be able to proceed in effective management. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark DeLeggi, and joining me to discuss chronic constipation is Dr. David Pura, professor of medicine at the University of Virginia School of Medicine and past president of the American Gastrological Association. David, how about lifestyle changes? Does that work at all for patients who are constipated? Is it really effective? Well, you know, Mark, something we always do. I mean, I think it makes sense to tell our patients to drink a lot of liquid and we tell our patients to bulk up their stools with fiber, and we tell them to exercise. But, you know, if you really look at the data, if you're an evidence-based physician, you probably wouldn't recommend those things. But I'm going to continue to recommend them because patients expect some sort of lifestyle advice. They know that probably part of what they're doing is contributing to their problem. But a couple of things that, you know, I find are very helpful. Number one, I always tell my constipated patients to make sort of a dedicated bathroom time. You know, Mark, we live in a society where we're sometimes too busy to stop and have a bowel movement. If we neglect that or if we ignore that urge to have a bowel movement frequently enough, we're going to lose that urge. So I tell patients to, you know, in the morning usually because right after breakfast or the cup of coffee because that is when the gastrocolic reflex seems to be the, you know, its height. I ask them to sit on the toilet and to strain. They say, well, Dr. Pierre, how hard should I strain? 
Well, I say that, you know, if 10 is straining so you blow an aneurysm, you know, somewhere around a 5 or a 6. <laughs> so they do that and see if they can have a bowel move. The other thing I've gotten in the habit of doing recently is using probiotics. You know, there's not a lot of evidence to support them, but there are some data to suggest that you can improve bowel function with certain of the probiotics. In some of the supplemented yogurts, for example, are, have been shown to improve bowel function. You know, there are 100 trillion cells in our body. Only 10 trillion are our own, 90 trillion are bacteria. So they've got to be doing something. And I think that we're going to find that sort of altering or modulating our gut flora probably are going to play a role in managing lots of things, not only just constipation. How about from the perspective of someone that comes in and says, I'm having constipation, but it ends up being every couple of weeks versus the person who's chronically constipated. Is there a difference in how you would approach the treatment in them? Yeah, I think there is, Mark. I think the first scenario you described is sort of an occasional phenomena. Those patients generally do real well with, you know, some over-the-counter help and some of the over-the-counter laxatives, the osmotics. Uh, PEG, for instance, polyethylene glycol is now available over-the-counter, and it's approved for, you know, seven days of use for occasional constipation. And those are also the patients that probably are going to benefit most from lifestyle. But the patients, I'm sure, that challenge you and me are the ones that have constipation all the time. It's, it's not an occasional thing. I mean, occasionally they may have a normal bowel movement. The rest of the time, uh, they're constipated. Now, those patients, you know, do benefit maybe a little bit from lifestyle modifications. I still, as I mentioned, do recommend that. We use off-label medications, over-the-counter meds like PEG. It is only approved for episodic or occasional constipation, but I'm sure you, like me, will give uh, polyethylene glycol to patients long-term. Lactulose is something that's out there. It's a prescription medicine. It's a non-absorbable sugar that sort of works as an osmotic laxative and help some people. The problem with lactulose, and at least in my practice, is patients get a lot of gas and bloating. Because remember, giving lactulose to somebody is like giving somebody with lactase deficiency a couple of glasses of milk to drink. So, you know, they're going to be unhappy. And then there's some new things. There's a new medication, uh, lubiprostone, which is a unique mechanism of action. It actually opens up chloride channels in the intestine. How we move fluid and electrolytes from one space to another is through chloride channels. So what it does is it opens up a type 2 chloride channel and fluid and electrolytes can come into the small intestine and stimulate uh, peristalsis. But it's been recently approved for IBS-C also. That's why it's so important that you make a distinction between chronic constipation and irritable bowel because the dose is different. In chronic constipation, it's a higher dose. It's 24 micrograms twice daily. And and in the IBS-C patients, it's a third of that. It's an 8 microgram dose twice daily. So you really have to make that distinction. So you give a high enough dose for the chronic constipation patients and not a too high a dose for the irritable bowel patients. David, you know, as a gastroenterologist, my brethren and other practitioners are just getting their arms around probiotics that you had talked about. Then what about biofeedback? I mean, as another modality that we really haven't grasped onto. Is this, is this for real? Yeah, you know, a lot of people sort of look at biofeedback as witchcraft. But I can tell you, Mark, it really works in the patients that have uh, disordered defecation. Those poor people, and they're usually women, who strain and strain and strain, and the harder they strain, the more their sphincters actually contract. With biofeedback, you can actually have them retrain that sphincter mechanism. So if you do an anorectal manometry and you confirm that their straining is discoordinated, they're ideal candidates for biofeedback. Um, the other thing is some people maybe 
those people that have just sort of neglected the urge to have a bowel movement, you know, have impaired rectal sensation. You know, you can blow up a balloon in their rectum and, you know, they don't feel anything. So you can reach a threshold and then, again, using biofeedback, you can get them to start sensing in the rectum and and, uh, that will facilitate bowel movement. So I use it sparingly, but I use it in people that have had the documented abnormalities uh, on um, uh, uh, interrectal manometry studies. David, they say behind every gastroenterologist or great gastroenterologist is a colorectal surgeon. So what and when do you refer to the surgeon? That's really a tricky thing, Mark, because, um, you know, my practice, and I'm, you know, I know yours is also a, a sort of a tertiary referral practice. We see the worst of the worst. And uh, I'm oftentimes seeing patients for second, third, fourth opinions, uh, and, uh, in fact, uh, today in clinic, I saw a young woman who basically doesn't have a bowel movement, uh, but every, every several weeks. And, you know, she's had anal rectal manometry done that, that doesn't show any definite abnormalities, but, but she has a SITS marker study where you give radiopaque markers that just show that she has no movement in her colon whatsoever. I mean, the markers are there. Uh, two weeks after she, you know, has ingested them and they're spread out throughout the colon. And, you know, she's just really at her wit's end. I mean, she's got to the point where she can't function anymore. Uh, she's tried all the available laxatives and on-label, off-label doses, pretty much everything you could think of. So she's probably one of the candidates that, uh, you know, I'm going to talk to my surgeon about. But you obviously want to make sure that there's not a big pain component there because surgery is not going to help the pain. Uh, you want to make sure that there's not a huge psychological overlay because that's going to cloud the surgical result. I counsel patients that surgery can improve their bowel movement frequency, but it's not going to necessarily make their pain any better. It's not going to allow their kids to uh, get all A's or uh, you know, put their marriage back together. So uh, they have to be realistic. And I have a very good colorectal surgeon and he and I work together, and I think he's convinced that doing a you know, subtotal colectomy is probably going to be the treatment of choice for surgery. Anything less than that generally uh, is not going to be a good result. Dr. Pura, thank you very much for being our guest this week on GI Insights. My pleasure. You have been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA.